There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, Episode 79. In this episode, um, I thought I'll talk a little bit about the pitfalls of passive investing. Now, everyone knows that I'm a boring investor. My principles are that of automation and passive investing, tracking an index fund. So I want to discuss in this episode, what are some of the pitfalls of passive investing, particularly with relevance to index funds? Now, passive investing isn't perfect, and it's time to acknowledge this and discuss why it isn't perfect. In fact, there is no specific investing strategy that is perfect by any means. If you're new to this channel, please share it. It's free. It's available on devraga.com. That's D-E-V-R-A-G-A.com. It's also available via castbox.fm app, which you can download for free and search for Devraga Personal Finance within the app. Also available on Google Podcast and Spotify app as well. And don't forget to join my Facebook page where I share interesting articles and random thoughts about personal finance and investing. Now, also remember the aim of this channel, and that is to educate, to empower, and to entertain. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, nor am I an accountant. I'm not a lawyer or a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make to your appropriate advisors before making them, rather than listening to some random podcaster and then making financial decisions. If you're stuck on what to do, though, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Remember, I'm all about principles. I'm not really into this nitty-gritty fine detail thing. It's all about setting up behavioral habits in your finances. Step one, pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it away. Step two, invest that money, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. I just invest in index funds because I understand index funds. Step three, make sure that the dividends that you get from those investments are always reinvested back into those investments. Don't take cash out as dividends. The power of compounding is very real. Step four, do it for the long term. I'm not talking five 10 or even 15 years. I'm talking 20, 30, 40 years. Now, if you're in your 20s listening to this, if you start investing and invested for 40 years, I assure you, you'll end up with a lot more money than what you think you might end up with. And step five, automate the process. Automate the investment and do it forever. If you did that, you're far more likely to have more money than you ever need in your retirement. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life better, but also, most importantly, to make the people's lives around you better as well. Now, before we go on to absolutely trash the passive investing strategy in index funds, let's briefly summarize it and discuss its benefits The core principles of passive investing are, number one, it just means you limit the number of trades. 
That is what passive investing means. It's a buy and hold strategy, and it means you avoid selling. A lot of people automatically associate passive investing with index investing. Passive investing is not just index investing. This is really important to understand. It also focuses on the fees. Remember, when you trade, you pay fees. Limiting trading means your fees are also limited. The aim of passive investing is to build wealth slowly over the long period of time. And passive investing focuses on low fees as fees are a killer over the long term. It ignores the short-term price fluctuations, it ignores volatility, which I call noise, and does not account for market timing. It's all about time in the market and not timing the market. The underlying assumption of all forms of passive investing is the market usually goes up over the long term. And it also focuses on the key principles of diversification. The philosophy is that you can't outthink the market. So what does that mean? It means that there are two basic principles that passive investors tend to believe. And that is they tend to believe the modern portfolio theory. And the second thing is they tend to believe the efficient frontier. Now, I've talked about this in brief detail uh, in very, very earlier episodes, but I just want to summarize those two concepts for you, and then we'll get on to the pitfalls of passive investing. Now, the modern portfolio theory basically means the markets are always efficient. Markets price stocks based on all the available information. Therefore, why bother with active investing at all? Because it's impossible to price discover, and it's impossible to achieve a profit. For a given level of risk, there is a level of return. That is, if the investors had a choice to make a certain return, let's say they want to make a 5% return, they would always want to go with the option which is less riskier rather than achieving something of the same sort with a much more riskier option. Why would you want to achieve a 5% return if there's a less riskier option? Why would you take the higher risk option? It makes sense. I mean, I wouldn't take the high risk option, would you? So this leads to the next concept within modern portfolio theory, and that is the efficient frontier. Now, the efficient frontier is basically a graph. The x-axis represents risk, and the y-axis represents the rate of return. The graph actually looks like a C. And what you notice is not all portfolios, which are risky, provide the same level of return. So it's a rule that any portfolio under this curve is actually not efficient because the investor is taking too much of a risk to get a reward which can be achieved with a lower risk portfolio. Now, this is a concept you must understand. If you haven't understood efficient, um, efficient Frontier, I want you to go after this podcast and Google it and really plot out your risk and reward ratio. And you'll notice that very, very smart people have already worked this out, and that is Portfolios that have a higher risk need not always have the greatest return. So that's really, really important for you to understand. So if you can't outthink the market, then what options do you have? Well, it turns out you have two options. 
You can, one, buy a diversified portfolio of individual stocks across wide sectors and industries, and this can be achieved but can be quite costly because each time you buy individual stocks, you've got to pay brokerage, and it can be quite difficult to manage to try and buy a wide, diversified portfolio of individual stocks. So if you want to buy you know, 50 to 100 stocks, then it's actually quite difficult to do that. It is possible, but it's quite difficult and can be quite time-consuming. Or you can just buy the index fund or the ETF, which tracks the index. For example, I just buy the Vanguard ASX 300 index fund. Now, technically, I'm not really a passive investor because even though I have a buy and hold strategy, I'm constantly buying. Remember, the strict definition of a passive investor is limiting the number of sales, but also limiting the number of buys because it avoids fees. Now, if you constantly buy, then overall, the management fee becomes bigger and bigger. But I'm really being pedantic here. Let's just assume for the purposes of this episode, let's say that passive investing is a keep buying and keep holding strategy. So, index investing is a form of passive investing. That's point number one. Index investing is not always passive. It is a form of passive investing. Now, let's talk specifically about indexing and see if it ticks the boxes of passive investing. Number one, you can buy or keep buying and keep holding index funds. That's right. Number two, usually index funds have very low fees. I think Vanguard has a fee structure of ASX 300 of 0.16%, which is extremely low. Number three, index funds that represent an entire country market or an entire world market usually rise over time. And we'll get to the Australian market later on in the podcast. I think you'll be very interested to find out some of the figures here over the long term. How has the Australian stock market performed? Number four, index funds are affected by market volatility, but passive investors don't really care. Check. Number five, it takes the long-term view. That is, index funds have been around since the 1970s. Yep, it's been about 40, 50 years now. Number six, index funds can have companies from across various industries and provides for easy access and easy diversification. Yep. Index funds offer transparency. I can look into the ASX 300 and find out exactly which companies are represented within it. And in fact, if I go to Vanguard, it has every single company within the ASX 300 within that index fund. I can actually look at how much of the portfolio actually is allocated to that company. So it's pretty transparent. Number eight, they offer reinvestment of dividends, so are very tax efficient. And also because you can kind of never sell, you don't really trigger a capital gains event. So that's even better. Number nine, it's simple effective and easier to manage and can be automated. Now, Vanguard ASX 300 is automatically um, getting money from a bank account on a BPAY basis. I think with ETFs, you might have to manually do that. So it partially ticks that as well. So it kind of ticks a lot of these boxes and it's one of the most efficient and effective ways to build wealth over the long term. It sounds too good to be true and it sounds way too perfect. The answer is... It's not perfect, and it does have deficiencies. And that is passive investing and index investing does have its downsides. So let's look at the pitfalls of passive investing slash index investing. And now for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to be focusing on index funds. Okay, we're going to be using it in a synonymous way, even though index investing um, is not always passive. It is just a form of passive investing. So some proponents of active investing um, uh, principles disagree that markets are efficient. 
Uh, why? Because for markets to be efficient, investors have to be rational. And investors are not always rational and, in fact, are often irrational. We've seen how irrational investors are, particularly with markets have been being so volatile due to COVID. And some days there is no rhyme or reason as to why the stock market goes up and in other days why it goes down. So when you think about the Australian economy, you have the same companies, Coles, Woolies, all the big you know, mining companies, the big utility companies, you know, people still have to eat, people still have to have materials and resources to work with, people still have to drive, people still have to work. So yes, the overall economy is going to take a bit of a tumble at the moment, but the fundamentals are still there. I mean, people still have to buy from Coles, people still have to buy from Woolies, people still have to drink alcohol. It's not as if they're going to stop alcohol due to COVID. There might be a little bit of reduction in the three to six months, but we're going to get back to normal. So I guess... Because of that, um, investors have really reacted to this whole situation in a really, really haphazard manner. And the volatility index between you know February, March and April, if you have a look at it, it's just absolutely crazy. So why is that? Investors are not rational. So, And as a result of that, market uh, efficiency is affected and therefore the modern portfolio theory and efficient frontier theories you know, technically may not be accurate. And that's the premise of active investing. Active investors feel that the markets are not always efficient. And nowhere is it more clearer than, you know, potentially the last three months uh, globally. So let's have a look at the pitfalls of index and passive investing. Pitfall number one, you have no choice what direction the market takes. The index funds like ASX 200 or ASX 300 are mostly market cap weighted. So the most valuable a company is, the more they represent of the index. Now, for example, the financial markets make up about 26% of the ASX 300. That's all the banks, etc. And this can change based on asset value. So if the financial companies have a bad day, the index will suffer. And as a result, you will suffer because you own the index. And that includes me. So the good thing is, if the financials have a great day, then you will also have a great day. So you've got no choice what direction the market takes. You're kind of vulnerable to what, you know, what irrationality exists in the market to some extent. So if you want to control and want to manage your investments on a more microscopic level, then index funds and passive investing may not be for you. And you could potentially short the index at the same time. If you're worried about it, you can buy and short it. But, you know, you might want to learn more about short selling, uh, which I've talked about in episode 72. Uh, but that type of hedging strategy is kind of pointless because the net effect is zero. If you're going to buy the index and then short the index, then you're kind of going against yourself. So I don't see what the value of that, but you could do that if you wanted to. So I don't see much value in doing that personally, and I don't short anything. So then remember, the aim of shorting something is when you think the market will tank in the future. Not when the market is actually tanking and everyone knows about it by then. So if you want to short the market, you really should have shorted it in January or prior, not in March or April when everyone kind of knows that you know COVID nineteen is here in Australia. So that's the that's the pitfall the, uh, about um, index investing and passive investing, and that is you can't really choose the direction where the market goes. Wherever it goes, you go with it. Pitfall number two, you can't react quickly. If a particular company on the index has a disastrous quarter, their stock price will tumble. This creates irrational fear in the market in that sector. For example, if CSL, which is a great biotech company, had a very bad quarter, 
its stock will fall, but it may cause irrational fear for other biotech companies and other health stocks. Therefore, they also take a fall, and people might associate CSL result with other companies' results. Rumors start spreading, and markets can react to this. This means that sector in the index also suffers due to just being one big company stock declining in value. Just because CSL declines, then the whole health sector might decline as a result. And this is one of the problems of the market cap weighted system and market cap weighted indices like the ASX 200 and the ASX 300. An active investor may actually take advantage of this and buy up undervalued companies. Now, I've discussed about some of the key by, uh, key metrics of uh, active investing in episodes 77 and 78 on ratios used to value a company stock, which I think is worthwhile listening if you are an active investor. I want to learn more about it. So... An active investor in this particular case may take advantage of market pricings and in that sector and profit from it by holding on until the market makes a recovery. So index investors can't really react to the market and they can't move with the same agility that active investors can do. Likely, if CSL stocks skyrocketed then, it tends to become more valuable, which means it represents the index at a much more proportion than the stocks. So index investors and passive investors may get more exposed as a result, and if they buy more of the index, it means they pay a premium. This is actually counterintuitive, which would make you pay more for the same company. Why would you want to do that? Wouldn't you want to sell more of that company to make a profit and allocate capital to undervalued companies? That is the argument of active investment. So pitfall number two, summary, you can't react quickly with index or passive investing. Pitfall number three, you lose all control of what's in the index. Now I've talked about it previously where there are some set rules and regulations as to what sort of companies are allowed into what specific indices. Um, so, But you as an investor don't have any control over that. So, for example, I can't buy an index and have any control over what it holds. Okay, It has specific rules and every quarter that gets rebalanced, so some companies may get dropped off the index, but you can't have any specific control. Now, having said that, if you are interested in health or technology or minerals, you can go ahead and buy indices in those sectors, but that's about it. That's the level of active investing you can do, but you can't choose which exact tech companies should be part of that specific index. So if you buy the S&P ASX 300, you are buying and holding everything in that index based on the weighted value of the company. This is despite you thinking company B is better than company A because you've done your fundamental stock analysis. So, the, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the pitfalls. So pitfall number three, you lose all control of what's in the index. And I guess if you do a global index or you do a national index like the ASX, you have to let go of your morality, personal feelings, ethics, uh, SRG. That does not come into play when investing in major indices. Now, having discussed that, remember I've talked about SRI and socially responsible investing and ethical investing in episode 74. If you're interested, to be fair, there are indices which are specifically SRI-related or ethical investing. Uh, it's just a matter of finding them, and I have talked about those indices in those episodes uh, if you are interested in going back and listening to them. Pitfall number four, passive and index investing doesn't take into account any specific investing strategy. That is, the risk-adjusted return strategy is practically useless. The advantage of index investing is great diversification, but do you really need 200 to 300 stocks in your portfolio? 
Diversification can be achieved with as little as 20 to 30 companies in your portfolio. So uh, that's another pitfall. Pitfall number five, constantly checking the market. Now, investing is a very emotional thing. Again, you know, rationality may not exist in investing. So investing passively and into an index takes some of the emotion out of it, which is fantastic, but the major indices are reported twice daily on the news. It's hard to ignore. Now, at the time that I'm podcasting this, it's about 5 p.m., you turn on the news, the ASX 200 index is probably being reported right now. The All Ordinaries index is probably being reported right now because the markets react to daily news cycles. So you may develop a receding hairline, by constantly checking the ASX 200 or ASX 300 index and fret about the losses. Look what happened in March. Market lost up to 20%. Did you check the market? Even I did. I had to peek into it. I was so curious. Then I quickly closed the computer screen before I had chest pains and palpitations. I had a different story. But I don't check my portfolio often. Even I avoid it. But it's hard to avoid the news and it's hard to avoid the 24-7 news cycle that has just made index investing and passive investing that much more difficult. So those are the five pitfalls of passive investing or index investing. So what's the verdict? Well, passive investing is not the same as index investing. For the purposes of this episode, I'm using the terms interchangeably, but that's important for you to understand. It's not for everyone. It's not perfect, despite many people make it out to be. And you need to understand it just like any other investments you hold or want to hold. The biggest advice I would give any investor is learn and understand what you're investing in. Don't randomly buy investments if you don't have a clue. Don't follow the herd. So if you don't truly believe in passive investing, then don't invest in passive investing funds or don't invest in index funds. It's as simple as that. But over the long haul, passive investing and index investing is likely to beat most active investors. Historically, this has been very, very true. Now, that doesn't mean that active investing is always bad. For example, some people argue the fact that I chose a Vanguard ASX 300 index fund is an active choice. That is an active decision. But that's just being picky for the sake of arguing. So for the sake of, I mean, every time you do something in life, every time you make a particular decision, that is an active decision. So by, you know, by definition, by choosing to invest in a passive index fund, that process itself is active. And I guess, and I get it, but that's just being really nitpicky for the sake of arguing. And the bottom line is active investors think markets are not always efficient and passive investors or index investors take the broad economic view that things will rise over time. So let's have a look at the stats of Australian equity markets over the last 100 years, from 1917 to 2018. There's a great RBA article on this, which uh, is actually fascinating reading, but I'll just sort of summarize it in this in this episode for you. So we talked about how great passive index investing is. We talked about some of the pitfalls of passive and uh, index investing is. Let's look at what the Australian equity markets have done over the 100 years and see if passive investing or index investing would have had a good return over those 100 years. And that's, that's a very long term. Now, over the 100 years, the percentage of securities against Australia's GDP has changed from mainly being government-backed bonds to more and more equities. Um, so in the 30s and 40s, government-backed bonds accounted for 200% 
of GDP, now they account for less than 50%. So people are shying away from bonds. Fair enough, people are moving towards property and equity. So that's a good thing. Equities accounted for 20 to 30, 35% of GDP in the 30s and 40s. Now they account for about 100% of GDP, around $2 trillion. So these stats are accurate as of 2018. So it doesn't really take into account the COVID scenario. But we've gone from 20 to 35% of GDP in the 30s and 40s. In the 2000s, it's now 100% of GDP. So equities are firing on all cylinders. Okay, that's great. But the biggest problem that I've found with the Australian data is we don't have much data before 80s and 90s. A lot of this is extrapolated and retrospectively analyzed. A lot of this data is not prospective. So American data is very accurate, and they've had a long history of collecting accurate data, especially the PE and PB ratios. But uh, before this RBA report, there wasn't much data available for the Australian market over the last 50 to 100 years. And I guess part of the reason for this, I think, is until the 1990s, Australia as an economy was really closed market to the world. We didn't really have significant free market economics and um, the globalisation process really only started in the 90s. Now, deregulation on mass scale, though, really only started in the 90s with the Keating government. And since then, we've just had a lot more data to analyse. And of course, a lot more people have transferred their wealth from bonds and property to equities. Now, Around 50% or more of the total return of the Australian stock market has been from dividends. That is incredible. So when you ask me why I would invest in the Australian stock market, it's because of capital gains, but also because it provides an income. And that income is dividends. And of course, in my situation, I always reinvest dividends. In fact, since 1987, the dividend payout ratios has increased substantially in Australia when compared to the United States. This is largely due to the franking system introduced then. In America, companies choose to return capital to the shareholders by stock buybacks. But in Australia, stock buybacks don't get any preferential tax treatment, so investors don't really like them. The franking dividend and credit system in Australian taxation law avoids double taxation of any individuals or dividends paid to shareholders where the company has already paid their share of the taxes on the profit. So if you include dividends in the return of Australian stocks, over 100 years, the return has been around 10% per year. That is impressive. Inflation adjusted returns has been close to 7%. Again, very impressive. Interestingly, all sectors in the Australian economy, perform roughly the same during this entire time. So you could have picked a sector and still ended up with around 10% per annum returns over the 100 years. Now, if you had invested in government bonds over this time, over the last 100 years, your return would have been 6% before inflation, and inflation-adjusted return would have been just 2 to 3%. So not great. And if you have a look at the stats, this is why people, I think, have transferred their wealth from government-backed bonds to equities, which is a fantastic move. Now, the S&P 500, which is the US stock market, how has it performed over the last 100 years? 9.8% roughly. So the Australian stock market is on par, if not better, than the American stock market. So this is why... It's important not to exclude Australia out. We're only 2 to 3% of the global economy, but we have a great fundamental system that performs well 
in any market conditions, and a lot of our companies in Australia have significant overseas exposure. So I don't invest in countries that I don't live in. So I don't invest in the US market. I don't invest in European markets or the emerging markets. I invest in the Australian market, so that puts me at a significant country risk. But over the last 100 years, if you bet on Australia, you've done reasonably well. Now, what about sectors over the 100 years? So how have they performed? How much was each sector represented by uh, when it comes to... um, when it comes to GDP, I guess. So resources, oh, sorry, when it comes to equities. So resources sector represented about 20% in the 1920s to 30s. Now it's still very much the same. But during that time, though, it skyrocketed up to 60%, especially during the 70s. The financial markets, the financial companies represented 35% in 1920s, 30s. Now it's around 40%. After Great Depression, it fell down to the 20% um, uh, uh, after the Great Depression. So uh, in terms of the representation of financial system uh, in the equities, uh, you know, like the financial banks, etc., it still represents around 40%. What about price-to-earnings ratios over 100 years for the entire stock market in Australia? How has that performed? Well, 15 to 16 is where the average is. Um, it's gone beyond 30 in 1970s when stocks were actually significantly overvalued. It's gone as low as 6 in the 80s when we had a market crash. And just before the 2000 tech bubble, it was 24. Just before the GFC, it was 22. Uh, then it dropped down to as low as 11. So from a price to earnings ratio over the last 100 years for the entire stock market, the Aussie stock market has been about 15 to 16 hovering about. That's been roughly the average. Now, hopefully that provides some context to the question, how has Australian equities performed over the long period of time and how has you know, passive investing performed if you invested in Australian equities over the 100 years? And the answer to that question is, you have done reasonably well. So if you pick a particular investment that provides you with a consistent 10% return over the long term... I would take that, uh, but I don't know whether the next 100 years we're going to get a significant return. Uh, you know, we might only get 6 to 8%. I don't think we'll get the 10% return, but 6 to 8% is actually not too bad, you know, compared to other uh, investments such as gold or Bitcoin or commodities or property or bonds or whatever it is. Um, I think if you bet on the Australian economy, I think generally you're doing reasonably well. Now, before we finish up, though, I want to talk about two other subtopics when it comes to index funds and when it comes to passive investing. The first topic is, are we in an index bubble? Now, this has been floating around quite a lot. Michael Burry famously predicted this in the future in uh, in 2019. Uh, when uh, when he had an interview with Bloomberg via an email, uh, having email interviews, that's interesting. But anyway, uh, in September 2019, Michael Burry famously said this, and I quote, the recent flood of money into index funds has parallels with the pre-2008 bubble in collateralized debt obligations, the complex securities that almost destroyed the global financial system. What does that mean? Well, who is Michael Burry? If you haven't heard of him, he's the famous guy featured in the movie The Big Short. If you haven't seen The Big Short, watch it. 
He predicted the GFC and that CDOs or collateralised debt obligations have junk mortgages within them and will collapse sooner or later. And when it did collapse, he has already betted against them. So he shorted them um, and made a killing. I think he made about a billion dollars for his investors and he personally made about a hundred million dollars from what I've read. So, what happened in the GFC in 2008? I've talked about it previously, but here's a quick summary. Credit was available widespread, widespread credit. People borrowed crazy amounts of money to buy homes they couldn't afford. Banks didn't check their financial health, so kept lending the money. Mortgages were packaged up to vague security products called collateralized debt obligations and sold as securities. So basically, banks just you know invented things. Uh, if you bought those securities, your dividend will be the sum of the interest payments on the debt obligations, which eventually was made by people who owned homes and had mortgages. When people defaulted on those mortgages, they didn't pay the interest or the principal and investors who held those CDOs didn't get their dividend, so they tried to sell them to other investors. But who's going to touch a toxic asset which has toxic mortgages in them? And this is how the collapse happened in the housing industry. It was a chain reaction. So, Michael Burry predicts when this happens again, i.e. the movie theatre gets more and more crowded with index investors, the exit door is still the same, so everyone won't be able to get out at the same time, it will create a disastrous crash. The longer it takes to happen, the more pronounced the crash will be. That is his prediction. He says that people are not performing fundamental analysis of companies anymore. They just buy the index funds. It's easy. It's simple. It's effective. It's efficient. This, I think, is quite true. That is, people invest in index funds without understanding what the index comprises of. Now, remember, there are thousands of index funds. There are index funds for rocks, I'm pretty sure, or, you know, special kind of granite. So, you need to make sure we understand the index fund that you're investing actually has fundamental principles that are quite sound. Just because it's an index fund, that doesn't mean it's great. So, that's point number one. So, I understand that point taken, okay? If you don't analyze companies, if you don't analyze index funds or don't know what their true value or what they're in it, uh, what companies actually represented in the index, then you simply pay the price they ask for their stocks. You simply pay the price that they ask for their ETFs or their index funds. Now, that's not great. You need to understand what you're investing in. So, we need to know the difference then between the price and value, and this is step one. And he feels that people don't know the difference. People are associating price with value. So, going back to what happened in the GFC, people just bought CDOs because they were great, you know, investments as securities, you know, without actually checking the mortgages that it carried, which happened to be toxic. Index funds often don't have liquidity. That's the other big thing about this. So that, that means that they're traded less often, which means there are companies which get featured in the index, and just by doing so, their stock prices rises, and that rises the index. But why? It can be pretty random. So the other thing as well is he talks about price discovery. Price discovery only happens after fundamental analysis, but people also sell stocks. And, and, and of course, his whole premise is that if you continuously keep buying something, then potentially you're buying things for the sake of buying them, and as a result, it's going to go up in value, but fundamentally, that process is flawed. That's basically what he believes in. So, let's use an example. If there are limited sellers of property, and if you just have buyers, what would happen? More buyers, limited sellers would mean increased demand for properties. This pushes up prices. But 
is the value of the property actually rising? Would people buy because of fear of missing out rather than fundamentally looking at the basics of the property, analyzing its benefits and its risks and analyzing the benefits of property ownership of that particular property and making sure that they offer prices which are suitable to the particular property. So what tends to happen when you have more and more buyers and less sellers is that people just tend to buy things for the sake of buying because they fear of missing out. And as a result, that just drives up prices. So for reasons I've already discussed in this episode, index investing means net buyers, low amount of sellers, and price just keeps going up and up and up. Remember, index investing is a form of passive investing. Some of the smaller companies which form part of the index may fail, and this would create a chain reaction if there is a depressive episode in the economy. Now, it's an interesting viewpoint, and I think parts of it are valid. I'm not an expert, and that's why when investing even in index funds, you must understand your investment. Know which companies are part of it, and make sure you come back to the basic principle of knowing what you're investing in, understanding your investments at all times. Don't just invest in an index fund because it looks cool, it's it's the herd, you know, herd principle, or it's some random index which comprises of some sort of rare metals or whatever, because you know what what's happening generally is that people are just creating index funds and just calling it index fund. Uh, and just because it's an index fund, people will go, oh, that must be good. It must be low fees. It must be passive. It's fantastic. Let's put my money in. That's not how it should work. It should work based on your understanding of your investment, which is why when I buy index fund, I just buy one. I buy the entire stock market. It's a lot easier. It's got significant diversification. It's got different sectors, etc., etc. Now, this brings me to the last point before we finish up this episode. I say that diversification is a good thing. But is there something called over-diversification? Now, shout out to the neurosurgeon that actually uh, wanted me to talk about this. Uh, That was his sort of learning point from the recent COVID crisis. There is such a thing as over-diversification. So thank you, neurosurgeon. Thanks for asking this question. Obviously doesn't want his name plastered all over the podcast, and I respect that. You can't ask anonymous questions, by the way. Um, It certainly has made me think about diversification. Is it always a good thing? Now, diversification means you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket. So if your only stock was Virgin Australia, for example, you would be in dire strife right now. You would have lost all your money. Diversification, though, reduces volatility and reduces risk. And the optimal portfolio, according to research, is around 20 to 30 stocks. So you don't really need to own 100 plus stocks to achieve good levels of diversification. So does that mean even owning the ASX 200 or 300 index fund or ETF is bad because it has so many different companies within it? Let's look at this more closely and consider the pitfalls of over-diversification. Now, if you draw a graph of risk versus number of stocks, you'll get an inverse logarithmic curve. That is, the risk doesn't substantially reduce after about 30 stocks in your portfolio, assuming it's diversified amongst various sectors and industries and countries as well. This means there must be a standard level of risk. That's called market risk. That is, no matter how many stocks you have in the portfolio, the market risk is standard and doesn't change. Therefore, you can only reduce your risk to the exact level of market risk, plus a little bit more depending on your portfolio. 
So very smart people like Elton and Gruber did some research about this and showed that market risk is priced at around 19.2% and that by owning 20 stocks, you can actually achieve the risk uh, down to market risk, which is around 19.2%. This is the standard deviation. So if you only had one stock, they found out that the standard deviation is close to 50%. But after 20 stocks, the risk is only reduced another 0.8%, no matter if you had 100 stocks or 1,000 stocks. So basically what they found was after about 20 stocks, the amount of market risk that is reduced is not that very much. In other words, you're not going to get more bang for your buck in terms of having more and more stocks. It's not a linear relationship. So the curve flattens after a significant number of stocks. So this is a problem with over-diversification. This means you may be giving up some large gains as a result. In other words, after the 21st stock, the 99th stock that you own, and you've diversified up 100 companies, let's say, you know, it may not provide you with a significant benefit of such huge amounts of diversification. Therefore, the reduction in risk when it comes to diversification is not linear. The value of owning more and more stocks reduces in terms of reduction of risk. So just because you own heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps of companies past the 20 company mark doesn't mean that it's a linear relationship that the risk reduces. You need to understand that. So does this mean that buying 20 stocks and be done with it? Maybe we should all just have buy the ASX 200 or just buy 20 different stocks across various sectors and just call it a day. Well, no. You need to achieve what is called true diversification. That is size, industry, sector, countries, asset classes, etc., etc. So is owning an index fund which has 100 companies bad then? Well, not really. But just make those 100 companies uh, are not in all the one sector. Make sure they're not in the, all in the one sector. And this is why just passive investing in every index fund in one sector is not a great idea. You need to diversify. So this all depends as well on your appetite for risk. And I've discussed this in detail in episode 75, what is financial risk? So the bottom line about over-diversification is if you have a thousand bucks to spend and you diversify it to five stocks, then you may end up better off than diversifying to 100 stocks. And this is because your gains, if the stocks do go up, is far more likely to be greater in the five stock bucket than the 100 stock bucket, only because the gains kind of have to be shared amongst the entire portfolio if you bought the 100 stocks. So over diversification, yes, there is a pitfall there, but I don't know whether it's a significant pitfall. I think I wouldn't say that it's a massive pitfall, but certainly, you know, having to hold 2,000 companies or 3,000 companies doesn't mean that you're going to reduce your risk all the way down to the market risk or less, because remember the standard deviation is at 19.2%. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea about passive investing and index investing and some of the pitfalls and also the other concept about the index fund bubble. Uh, no one knows what's going to happen in the future, so these are all just theories. 
and also the concept of over-diversification. That's it for this episode. In summary, passive investing and index investing are different. It's not perfect. Understand your risk. Are we in a bubble and learn about diversification and what over-diversification is? Thank you very much for the comments and questions and shout-outs. And once again, thanks to the anonymous neurosurgeon who asked this question. Remember to like Devraga Facebook page, shout-out for questions and comments or topic suggestions, and please share this channel with family and friends or whoever you think might benefit. It's available via castbox.fm app, Spotify, Google Podcast, or devraga.com. And remember, always pay yourself first, take that 20% of after-tax income and put it away. I know it's like me sounding like a broken record, but you need to start doing it. I speak to a lot of people and I get a lot of messages and there's a lot of people out there who are just pondering and pondering and pondering and pondering. You need to have installed this system in your brain. Uh, That way you can change your behavior and do it as soon as practical. And pay attention to index fund. Pay attention to the pitfalls of passive investing. It's not perfect. I do passive investing, I buy index funds, I like it, it's easy, it's simple, effective, but it's not perfect. I know that when the COVID-19 crisis came, the market was going to crash, but guess what? It's already starting to rebound and I've invested you know, heaps of money in March, heaps of money in April, heaps of money in May, and guess what I'll do in June, July, August, September, October? I won't stop, I'll continue putting money in the market. So, this is Dev Raga Personal Finance, episode 79, and as always, stay safe. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky, soft, and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.